Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of the Banshees of Inishirin. Call him Sonny Larry. Didn't you and he used to be the best of friends? We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. Well, you didn't do anything to me. I just don't like you no more. Did you like me yesterday? Why does he not want to be friends with you no more? Why is he 12? What the hell's going on with you, me feckin' brother? He's dull, Siobhan. But he's always been dull. The other night, two hours, you spent talking to me about the things you found in your little donkey shite that day. Well, it wasn't me little donkey shite. It was me pony shite, which shows how much you were listening. If you don't stop talking to me... Colm! And if you don't stop bothering me, I have a set of shears at home. And each time you bother me from this day on, I'll take those shears and I'll take one of my fingers off with them. And I'll give that finger to you until I have no fingers left. Does this make things clearer to you? Not really, no. Starting from now. But shush like, Polly. You know, shush like. Yeah, I'd shush like. Would you not want him to have to do the one finger to see if he was bluffing like? No, we wouldn't. Because worse goes to worse, he can still play the fiddle with four fingers, I bet ya. Going back to your own gang now, Potty. I'm talking to me! Are you? Why aren't you talking to Potty no more? That wouldn't be a sin now, would it, Fanny? No, but it's not very nice either, is it? Do you know who we remember for how nice they was in the 17th century? Who? Absolutely no one. Yeah, we all remember the music at the time. Everyone to a man knows Mozart's name. I don't, so there goes that theory. Can't be waiting around for any more of this madness. Let's just call it quits. We won't call it quits. We'll call it the start. All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer for The Banshees of Inishirin, and the story is as follows. On a remote island off the coast of Ireland, Parik is devastated when his buddy Colum suddenly puts an end to their lifelong friendship. With help from his sister and troubled young islander, Parik sets out to repair the damaged relationship by any means necessary. However, Colum's resolve only strengthens. He soon delivers an ultimatum that leads to shocking consequences. The film is starring Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Kerry Condon, and Barry Keoghan. It is written and directed by Martin McDonough, and here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Nadia Dalamante. Hi, everyone. Tom O'Brien. Hey, everybody. And Emma Sasek. 
Hello, hello. All right, so this is Martin McDonough's fourth feature film. And it is following his massive hit success, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which was nominated for Best Picture, got him a nomination for Best Original Screenplay, his second after uh, his nomination for Bruges, and won two Oscars for its actors, Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell. It did well at the box office. So there's been a lot of anticipation for how he would follow up that film. Now, I understand not everybody was a fan of Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I get that. And deep down, I sort of think Martin McDonough was aware of that too. Because this movie doesn't try to necessarily up the ante from Three Billboards in terms of scope or the size of its story. Instead, it is a more small-scale story that focuses in on a small group of characters on an isolated island in Ireland. And it's interesting in how it also harkens back to his playwork and isn't so much like the cinematic works of something like A Seven Psychopaths, which in its messiness is kind of fun still. And in Three Billboards, which I think was maybe a bit overreaching in terms of what McDonough wanted the film to be a social commentary on uh, at the time. But here, it's got social commentary, although I think it is deep. You have to dig for it to find it, peel back the uh, onion layers, whatever analogy you want to use here. But it is there. So in talking about that and talking about how it fits within uh, his filmography, it is also a reunion between his In Bruges stars, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, alongside uh, him once again. So there's a lot to look forward to here. It had its world premiere at the Venice International Film Festival, where it won prizes for Best Actor for Colin Farrell and Best Screenplay for Martin McDonough. Then it went over to the Toronto International Film Festival, and now it is currently playing limited release from Searchlight Pictures and will be rolling out to more theaters over the next couple of days. So why don't we start off first with Tom O'Brien, who, Tom, you saw it at the world premiere at Venice. What did you think of The Banshees of Inishirin, and how do you feel it fits within McDonough's overall body of work? Well, you know, it's funny, Matt, that my first exposure to McDonough was actually through his plays. I'd seen a couple of plays that came to New York uh, of his called The Beauty Queen of Lenan and The Lieutenant of Minishmore. And they just knocked me out. I mean, this guy, they were dark. They were funny. They were bloody. I've never seen so much blood on a stage outside of Shakespeare before. And I said, you know, this guy is for me. I really, I really responded to it. Then I heard he was going to do a movie called In Bruges. And I thought, oh, that's nice. But he'll go back to playwriting and uh, shows you what I know. Uh, I'm a huge fan of all four films. And uh, but I've always wished that he would take some of the what made those plays the the Irishness of them, the small villages, the people who knew each other's business, that kind of that kind of quality that is in so many of his plays. He never really tried in film. So I was really thrilled when I heard that the Banshees of Sharon was coming down the pike with these two actors. Um, so when I saw it at Venice, I can't tell you how high my expectations were, and it delivered on every front, and I can't wait to talk about it. All right. Delivered on every front. I love that. 
Nadia, how about you? I know you saw this one over at Toronto a few days later. I did, yeah, and what an entertaining experience that was. So this film actually exceeded my expectations. I kind of a hit or miss when it comes to Martin McDonough. I really enjoyed In Bruges, which was the first film that I of his that I had seen. Thought Seven Psychopaths was okay. Wasn't too, too crazy about Three Billboards. So I was finding myself less and less a fan of his films along the way. So I kind of went into The Banshees of Inishirin without the, that buzz of having loved his previous film. And I was just so pleasantly surprised by how much more fully realized and mature the story the storytelling felt among the rest of his work. It, I, it's so lyrical and existential, deeply sad, deeply funny in, e- in equal measure. It made me laugh throughout. And just speaking of the TIFF premiere that I went to, it was such a treat to watch the film with an audience and enjoying laugh in that buzz of laughter together. It was an enjoyable, a really enjoyable experience. And what was most resonating to me was how McDonough balances the tragic with the humor and finding the humor in the story that, in the way that he did really stood out to me. I love that the film is more character-based, especially in comparison to uh, McDonough's previous work. And so far, this is my favorite film that he's ever done and might be my favorite Colin Farrell performance to date. Wow. Nice. High praise so far from everybody here. Emma Sasek, how about you? I think my colleagues here have really summed it up very, very nicely. Um, I, although I haven't seen In Bruges from Martin McDonough, uh, I know. Emma! I'll get to it. I'll get to it. (laughs) I have seen Seven Psychopaths, and I actually, uh, I did really enjoy that one um, that has a really fun cast assembled in it. Um, I wasn't as high on Three Billboards, although that also had some pretty, uh, pretty great performances in it. So I very much like Nadia. I wasn't totally sure how I, where I would land with the Banshees of Inishirin, but I too was very pleasantly surprised with, um, I think also the the blending of that comedy and specific humor that Martin McDonough has, but it really drives home a very um just very deep personal messages that I think all of us kind of either fully realize at at whatever age and stage we are in life or as we you know kind of move along through life we'll we'll kind of get some of the ideas that he has put in here um but I think that this also has a very stellar cast I know I haven't seen them two in in Bruges together um, Colin and Brendan are just wonderful in this film. Although Carrie Condon was my MVP, I, I know that we'll talk about all of these performances in full detail later, uh, but she really shined for me and the journey that she herself goes through. So it was just really pleasant. I mean, I, I totally did not expect to, this to be among one of my uh, top 10 films of the year, but it's currently is among those top 10. So it's definitely a really, really great and rewarding film to watch. So I've been a fan of pretty much everything that Mark McDonough has really ever done. And that does include three billboards. I am a three billboards uh, defender in a lot of ways. Although I freely admit, like I understand the issues with that movie. I get it. Uh, but from his Academy Award winning short uh, film, Six Shooter, all the way to today, 
And then like Tom said, the play work as well. I just think that he's just an unbelievable writer. And it is so much in capturing what we've said here about the comedy and the drama and the way that the two are balanced. But what I love about the Banshees of Inishirin is I love that his previous three films in Brew, Seven Psychopaths, and Three Billboards are very aggressive movies. They're very in your face, either with their humor or with their moments of violence or even just with the chaotic storytelling. Uh, whatever it is that he's doing, it's very abrasive and just very in your face, like Francis McDormand kicking you directly into the nuts. Uh, the Banshees of Inishirin is a movie that I find is Martin McDonough at his most mature, as Nadia said before. And I also think his most refined. With each passing film, it seems like he's getting better and better at shot composition, how to block a scene, how to frame a scene. And then also the way that he is able to just nail down these performances to find the right pitch and tone that his writing is asking of all of them, I can see how it would translate better on the stage. And here, maybe because so much of the film is uh, set within these tight interiors, and then when they're in the exteriors, you know, you have to remind yourself it is an island, like Tom said, where everybody knows everybody. And so there's not that many uh, large set pieces or anything like that. And it does still give off that feeling of watching a play, even though there are multiple sets. There's just such a containment to it. And I think that helps here with the focus and the way that he uh, hones in on character. The premise of this movie is super simple when you really break it down. It's essentially a period film of what if I block this person on social media? (laughs) Like that's... That's kind of like the pitch for it, ultimately, right? This is the ghosting movie. <laughs> I could see it happening today. I could totally see somebody taking the premise of the Banshees of Inishirin and updating it to 2022 and making it about like the digital age. Like, oh, my God, he unfriended me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And then it's like he knocks like you go and knock on the person's door. What happened? What I do to you? You didn't do nothing to me. I just don't like you no more. (laughs) (laughs) I adored this movie. And I'm surprised to say that while maybe it's not necessarily my favorite Martin McDonough, because I did just recently watch In Bruges again. And oh, that movie just hits a sweet spot for me. um, I will definitely come forward and say that as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, this is his best work to date, I think. Uh, But yeah, let's start off with uh, the story, the premise here and where McDonough takes that story uh, and the lengths that he pushes the characters to throughout in terms of the stakes escalating. What did you all think? Because did you all know like the premise heading into it? I guess is the question I have on my mind. I didn't. Oh, no. No. Oh, so so you were like going in like completely blind. Yeah, I just, beyond Martin McDonough and Colin Farrell and Brennan Gleeson together again, I hadn't really read much about the story itself. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I can't remember if the trailer gave away anything in terms of what the high stakes ends up being, but I... The only thing the trailer does give away is the threat that if Podrick decides to continue to bother Colin, 
he's going to take the shears he has at home and he's going to take away, you know, one of his fingers off and then give it over to him. Mm. That's all that's in the trailer is that threat. Okay, I took that threat very seriously. <laughs> so I, I was very much in tune for, all right, we're going to get some finger snatching here. <laughs> so were you like yelling at the screen every time Parik would like go up to Colum and just like try to have a conversation? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> yes. Don't you know he means business? Like, I was like, this guy played Mad-Eye Moody. He's not fucking around here. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> Whenever you see Shears in a Martin McDonough piece, you know oh, yeah. trouble will ensue. That's true. Oh, yes. It's very true. I had the unique uh, situation where I saw it before anybody else had seen it. Right. So you didn't see a trailer for it or nothing. No, no. I had I had uh, there were no reviews. It did. You know, the embargo hadn't gone up yet. So I had no idea whether it was good or not. Mm-hmm. And from. The very first shot, as they're going up over the hill and you see in the, sh- the town in Inner Sharon, and the combination of that and the Carter Burwell score, I fell in love in that moment. And that that feeling of love never left me. <laughs> it's such an assured piece of direction. And you're right, Matt. He's He's matured so much in terms of how he puts things together and and he constructs the film so well not just in the screenplay he is a, a real master of uh, building blocks in his screenplays to huge payoff but just visually it is just a beautiful looking film credit to uh, cinematographer ben davis for that because he's worked with um matthew vaughn and he's also like a marvel uh, go-to cinematographer worked with james gunn on the guardians movies he's done avengers films captain marvel eternals and he just seems like such a versatile dp uh but here you know it was interesting because i kept on asking myself is this the prettiest Martin McDonough film to date? Because I did think Billboards had its moments too. But then, yes. yeah, Tom, when you take in that, you know, Irish landscape and that scenery Ugh. and the fact that this movie uses so much natural light, it's undoubtedly the most gorgeous looking film that McDonough has shot to date. Oh, completely. It's so beautiful. And, mm. and, and when you, you go see it, for, if you go see it for the first time, watch how uh, Ben Davis uses light. Yeah. Light through windows and shadows. Mm -hmm. The way he lights that bar. Oh, God, yes. Like, it's so dim, but yet there are these, like, pockets of, like, orange lights in the background. And then, like, the white light from the windows. It just, it looks so great. And yet, the movie never, in my opinion, draws, like, attention to itself in, in a flashy way. Saying, like, there's no moments of, like, oh, look at us. Look at me. Like, look at what we did here. It's very purposeful everything that they're doing in a in a in um uh in a way that services the characters it doesn't mm. it's it's not like um i'm trying to think of like what what was it three billboards there's like the the oneer of sam rockwell throwing Caleb Landry Jones out the window yeah there's nothing like that extensive in Banshees of Inisherin it, it, it's like technical stuff that your brain doesn't necessarily think of, you know, it, it's like all in the background and it's all working subliminally just to create a mood and an atmosphere. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I think also just thinking about the landscape itself, just the vastness of it, I think, really makes you think about the characters themselves and the loneliness that a lot of them are going through. Yeah, they're on an island. Yeah, the remoteness of it just it kind of creeps up on you and it strikes you more and more as the film goes on, I think. Mm -hmm. I I related to that really hard because I grew up on an island called Long Island. (laughs) And (laughs) there definitely is, I'm not kidding when I say this, there definitely is for a lot of people that live there, this sinking feeling that does set in after a while of you grow up you get a house you're either with someone or you're alone and that's it that's the life and because it is so self-contained you don't ever really leave the island for much maybe you go to like manhattan or something but a lot of people stay there and they don't ever get out of whatever small little world they've like built for themselves. I know a lot of people that are like that. I I, I knew that that was happening to me and I got the hell out of there. I needed to. <laughs> uh, and here you can see that happening with pretty much every single person that lives on the island of the fake island, might I add, of uh, Inishirin. It's not a not a real island. But you have characters that want to get out like Shaban, uh, Carrie Condon's character and Colum, who's not necessarily looking to leave the island, but he's looking to leave something behind after he dies because he recognizes that he's coming to grips with his own mortality and how so many people that live here are going to come and go and no one's ever going to remember them. And he wants to he wants to give his life some form of purpose. <laughs> some heavy shit. Yeah. <laughs> that just reminded me of that. A wonderful scene in this film where where Podrick and Colm are yelling at each other in the bar and uh, Podrick is kind of talking about kindness and if that's going to be remembered and Colm argues that no, the world doesn't remember kind people. They remember, you know, these musicians who left behind these amazing legacies and, and works of wonder that are still being played and you know, Patrick kind of says, well, you know, I still like being kind. I still think that kind people are great. My sister is going to remember me. She's the kindest person alive. I'm going to remember her. And I just thought that that was such a great scene and kind of, um, I think just showing the two worlds that they find themselves in and these mm-hmm. crises that they are kind of going through themselves, obviously Colm and his and facing his mortality, but kind of Patrick as well in terms of what he values and what he hopes other people value in the world. I thought that that was a fantastic scene. That's that's probably my favorite scene in this film. I agree. That's probably my favorite as well. It, it, it actually got me thinking in a way that I wasn't expecting to with this movie. Like I was really engaged with the question of who do I side with more in that argument? Yeah. Do I side more with Parik that it's okay to be nice and the people that you live with currently on this planet 
will remember your niceness and they'll take that to their graves and maybe the next generation or, you know, if you're like a grandfather or a grandmother or something, the next generation beyond that will recognize and know what that niceness was. But beyond that, that's it. Everything that you have just goes with you. Or mm-hmm. do you side with column where you need to create something? You need to leave something that's going to last generations uh, beyond just the two or three generations uh, after you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a generosity of spirit in it that he he gives column a very plausible reason for what he does. He's not just being a dick. No, no. You could tell that column still cares about Parik. Yeah, totally. He, he helps him out with the uh, with the police officer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though the, the the affection is still there, but there is that fear when you when you realize you're closer to the end than you are to the beginning, uh, that you you are you, you realize the clock is ticking, mm-hmm. and you've really got to do something to be to leave something behind. And I'm not sure that McDonough, who has been a very aggressive young playwright. He's in his 50s now, and mm-hmm. I'm not sure he could have written this quite the same way 15 years ago. I agree with that. This is definitely the work of somebody who is probably asking themselves very similar questions, I imagine, at this point. <laughs> uh, but it is rooted. It's interesting the way that these justifications are rooted for, for both of the characters, because Column ultimately is cutting Podrick off because they're spending all this time together being nice and having a good, you know, good belly of laughs, I'm sure, over a few pints of beer every night at the bar and so on and so forth. I'm sure it's lovely, but it's a waste of time to him at this point. And there's something about that that I... I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this too, but I'm sure you all have had friends in your life that... You had great times with, and then you stopped talking to them, maybe not even deliberately. Maybe it just time just went on and you realize, oh, I haven't seen or spoken to that person in a long time. And, oh, they haven't called me either. And you kind of sit back and go, what happened there? And I do think that a realization watching this movie, at least for me, set in that, wow, I guess subconsciously, I realized that I wasn't getting anything more out of my time with them other than those good vibes. I think it's kind of interesting that this film goes straight into the fact that Colm doesn't really want to do and have anything to do with Patrick anymore, rather than at least showing us like a snippet of what their friendship was like. And, you know, aside from like just hearing from other people, like, what do you mean? Have you guys been rowing? Have you been rowing? Have you been doing this? (laughs) Like you guys are always together. I kind of thought that that was a very interesting take to this because on the one hand, I I kind of would have liked to have seen like exactly what those conversations were like, uh, you know, as they were maybe getting drunk and sharing laughs over a few beers. Um, but I also kind of didn't necessarily mind not seeing that just because, um, I don't know, I felt like the dialogue was really, really, uh, engrossing and there were really sharp moments in there. So I'm, I'm curious what you guys all think about that decision too. Well, I, I think the dialogue does a really good job of filling in those blanks. It definitely you know, like does. there's the moment where he tells them, you know, we were talking about, like you were going on for two hours the other night about all the stuff you found in your donkey's uh, shite that day. And <laughs> it, it, just even an example like that tells you everything that you need to know about 
the type of person that Parik is. And I think, like I said, I think most of us will carry in with, you know, into the film. We won't realize it. And you you probably won't even realize it while you're watching the film. You'll probably think of it after it's over like I did. But I think we all are carrying in at least one experience in our lives of a friend that we used to hang out with. We had good times with. And oh, why do I not talk to that person anymore? What happened? Yeah. Why did yep. we fall out? And it wasn't because one of us deliberately cut it off. But I think the same truth applies, which is we don't like go to the extent that Column does where he like really is harsh about it and tells him to his face. And, you know, the person realizes, calls him out on it, yada, yada, yada. No, it's just like with us, it's like a quieter disconnect that happens on its own and i think it's the same thing though which is kind of sad i mean friendship breakups they kind of sometimes hurt more than relationship breakups like romantic loved ones just because you know you've told told those people your secrets you've shared many stupid laughs and moments with them and you know in those moments you feel like oh my god this is a lifelong friend and then of course things change, situations change, people grow up and, you know, grow apart. So those are, those are very sad moments. Yeah. That's a great point, Emma. I think that, uh, and the fact that they, they go right into the breakup and we don't see anything of their past. It just may be unique that these two actors, we know their past. <laughs> I was going to say, we know that they're pals in real life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and this road show they're doing on all the talk shows it just reinforced that these guys are really best friends. Yeah. And they have something very, very special together. And by casting them in the part, McDonough doesn't have to give us a big backstory in terms of what they were. We kind of guess what they were. I mean, Tom, to, to kind of fill in the blanks on that just a little bit, I actually, in a very weird time uh continuum sort of way sort of see this as like the not the sequel to in bruges but definitely like obviously because of the period in which it's set in uh this is like a prelude to in bruges and these two characters are just like being reincarnated essentially into <laughs> you know and like i hope that mcdonough continues to take uh, colin farrell and brendan gleason into other films and play around with their you know, relationship dynamic, because I think it would just be so funny to see these two actors bounce off each other in different time periods with different characters um, and kind of just see what like what is the connective tissue that ties like all of their films together in a way, you know? Yeah, it it is funny because I there are a lot of male pairings in movies, but there's nothing quite like this one. No. Yeah. Maybe it's because they're maybe it's because they're both Irish. Yeah, yeah but they both definitely bring a charm to the screen. I mean, I've I never don't enjoy seeing either one of them in a movie or in a series. I mean, they always they're always going to bring it for me. And they brought it here. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. They they tend to raise I each other's game. Oh, I was just going to kind of uh, echo of the points that everyone's making here about um, the, the acting, because. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson together, I think, because we know that they have so much chemistry, that really lends itself to the simplicity of the story. And I think it's that simplicity that works well. And it just, it, the story hinges on the chemistry that they have. 
so you completely buy into them having been lifelong friends and you just as easily believe that uh, Brendan Gleeson's character just doesn't like Patrick anymore. (laughs) And I think that's the beauty of the screenplay. It's sometimes when you do have those friendship breakups, there is no rhyme or reason to it. it. There's just this natural kind of dissolution of a relationship that has more to do with, I think, the the individual and what they're going through and what their what their inner conflict is, as opposed to anything else, really. Did that get like anybody else like thinking though about relationships being transactional? Yeah, because that is how Column is treating it. Ultimately, is I'm not getting anything out of my friendship with you anymore. Like I don't value the the laughs, the beers. I mean, I think um, at one point Parik even says. Um, you know, like he has this realization, you never liked me ever, did you? And in in Parik's mind, like they're the best of friends. And maybe he is so, as they say in the movie, dull <laughs> that he doesn't even realize that maybe Colm never wanted him around to begin with. And, you know, maybe he was just putting up with him because it's an island and he had no choice but to, you know, I, I mean, they don't, but because like to Emma, to your point, they don't show any of that. It's all implied. I think right. that actually is what aids in the storytelling. At, like I said before, being a more mature and refined work from McDonough is that it is engaging the audience, um, but giving us enough that we're able to piece it together and not be confused. We are able to do some work with this movie on our own. I think that's where the tragedy comes from. Just realizing that this, life that seemed so simple is not as simple or as happy or as fine and dandy as people once thought it was and that maybe there's that this realization in these characters that after all this time this foundation that their relationship was built on it can just crumble at any moment without without any kind of inkling or warning at all yeah, I it, it honestly made me really sad to like see all of this happening to Patrick and you know he just seems like such a sweet guy, you know. And I mean if if Colum it would honestly I don't know. I would rather hang out with Patrick rather than that crazy police officer. I mean <laughs> <laughs> at least he at least this guy is nice as he argued in the bar, but it did really make me sad. I mean just thinking about you know, just some guy who he enjoys the simple pleasures in life. He knows that this is probably where I'm going to die. I'm not going to leave this island, so I'm going to enjoy the things around me. And then his one friend basically says, sorry, I don't really care for any of that anymore. And so that just made me really <laughs> sad for him. Like you you feel for these characters in such a short amount of time. And I think that that really goes to show how strong the, the writing was in this film. So I, I totally agree with how mature this script is, how mature the entire story is, and just how uh, poignant these messages are that McDonough has, has put in, into the story. I think also just speaking to the kindness, I was just, I, it just made me think about uh, what you mentioned earlier, Matt, about that, sense of kindness versus how Colm is expressing himself and it's it's interesting to see how this death of a friendship consumes Podrick's character to the extent that he he too kind of veers into moments of 
vengeance and not being nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I thought was interesting. That it just kind of speaks to the inner conflicts of these characters and how that one decision can cause Podrick to kind of look inwards and maybe try to change how he's approaching things and be less kind. And that, I thought that was really interesting. Definitely. Oh, I love that. I mean, that that's the growth of Podrick's uh, character that I think is the most fascinating and like the biggest learn of all. And in, in, in all of this is that he learns or at least he attempts to stand up for himself and in doing so, Colum later admits like that. I think that's the most I've ever liked him. It's the most interesting he's ever been. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like when you were being actually, you know, mean and kind of speaking your mind and standing up for yourself. But I think that the relationship that Podrick has with Dominic, Barry Keoghan's character in this, who's kind of like seen as the real village idiot of the group, if you will, like everybody kind of treats him as, oh, he's strange. He's odd. I, I couldn't tell while watching this if he was autistic or something. But like Barry's doing this like physicality thing where he's like always swaying and always twitching and moving a lot. Yeah, I noticed. Um, I'm not sure exactly what it was they were going for with it. But I think that there's definitely something medical going on there that the, the time period in which they're in, they just don't understand it because that character Definitely has a lot more going on beneath the surface that meets the eye. And yet, despite that, even Parik befriends him. And I think he keeps him around to make himself feel better about the way that he feels the rest of the town views him as being dim-witted and dull. Like, hanging out with Dominic makes him feel um, less inferior. And that's another example, I think, of... Parik not being nice ultimately and the, and the friendship being transactional yeah he can say like yeah maybe I'm dull but at least I'm not like this guy exactly you know? like, in comparison I'm so much better than this guy and that, I think that's what he's getting out of his relationship with him ultimately and y- y- it just it, I just love that because I kept asking myself then throughout the rest of the movie all right Parik's relationship with Shabon his sister what is he getting out of that relationship what is he getting out of his relationship with Dominic? What is he getting out of his relationship with Colum? And each one of them is something different, which I think then just paints Podrick as a more fully three-dimensional character. Yeah, I, I, could, I can understand about the transactionalism, but I don't think it's um, calculated. No, oh, no, I don't think he I don't think he is aware. I think it is subconscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that, um, for example, with Dominic, yeah, there may be a feeling of a little bit of a feeling of uh, superiority, but Dominic is the way he's written and the, and the way Barry Kagan plays him. Um, he's very perceptive. He doesn't know he is, he has impairments in other areas, but he can see through people. And I'm glad they gave Dominic that little extra dimension and, um, you know, as and as a slight side uh, characteristic, his attraction to Siobhan mm-hmm. is just very sweet. <laughs> yes, that was a very fun scene between the two of them. I love the scene that they have by the lake near the end of the film. It might be my favorite scene in the entire movie, honestly. 
because I think that Barry is just doing some really underrated work there. And I say underrated because the other three uh, principals of this film, Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, and Carrie Condon, are rightfully getting a lot of attention. Uh, but Barry is just continuously surprising me year after year with every performance that he gives. And this is one that's unlike anything that I've seen him do before. He feels so at home with McDonough's writing and the way that this character, what this character was asking him to do in terms of just the comedic timing, as I mentioned before, like the physicality of him and how he just like the way, even the way like he just holds like his posture and just walks like all these little things about it. It's just such a very memorable character to me for such a, it's not a small role, but it's a smaller role compared to the other three. Yeah, it just feels like a very lived-in performance, too. Like, you can feel that he's been in this environment and that he knows what's going on and that, as Tom was saying, great point, that he can see through people and what their nature is. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shaban can as well, my God. Oh, I think out of every character in this movie, Carrie Condon uh, is... <sighs> Siobhan is just able to cut through so much of the bullshit in this film. And I love that about her. She just like yeah. goes right for the jugular in every scene, like trying to get down to the bottom of like, hey, what is going on between you and me fucking brother? <laughs> like, Are you brewing with me, brother? <laughs> I do love how she like, man, she like she loves her brother. She's going to stand up for him. Even yes. If he's like, like, even if he's like, no, it's fine. Leave it. She's like, I'm not leaving it. This is annoying me <laughs> she's like this is annoying me <laughs> but at the same time despite the fact that she loves her brother and she wants him to be happy and she feels bad that he's going through this time right now where it's cl- clearly his heart is broken there's a part of her that understands what column is doing yeah. and why yeah she yeah. fully understands because she is also actively trying to escape this miserable existence that they're all doomed to here mm-hmm. on this island. At least she goes about it in a way that's not, you know, as extreme. <laughs> no. She just has to deal with that lady. No news. No news. <laughs> that's no news. <laughs> I do have to say, I, um, Carrie Condon was truly my MVP of this film. I mean, she, like, is just such a strong woman who will stick up for everybody uh, who she loves. She doesn't care whose face she needs to get into, but you know, she will try to like get a straight answer for those people. And then, you know, she has her own struggles that she goes through that we get to see uh, a little bit of toward the end of the film. So I really enjoyed her character's arc in all of this and the way she combined with everybody else, but also how she individually, you know, led her life and led to a new chapter in her life toward the end. Not to mention, too, her and Podrick, they, don't they mention at one point that they just lost their parents a few years ago? I think you're right. Yeah. And so they're the only ones that they have left. Correct. So that's a very odd existence as well they're, they're sleeping in the same room in different beds together mm-hmm. very cramped space like they're all each other has left in this world and that's another thing too that i i felt so bad for Podrick for as this movie went on is that because it's scary when you rely on so few people 
in your life to give your life meaning. And if something happens where they're then taken away, what do you do then? Yeah, you you lose uh, you lose sense of yourself, and in those moments, you just don't know who you are anymore without those people and how they have shaped your life. That's definitely a very. I'm very very close with my parents, and I'm an only child, and that is a very terrifying thought for me to think of what it's <laughs> going to be like when eventually they are gone from this world. Well, don't be burning down any houses, Emma. Okay. Well, you know, I can't I can't control myself that much. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, though, is that when Colin Farrell, you know, undergoes this change in his character, like progressively, might I add, as the movie goes on, we buy it completely. Like the drastic measures that Parik takes towards the end of this movie, uh, I, I fully understood every single one of the justifications for why he was doing what he was doing because of that. Yep. I kind of did too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful blend of actor and and writer. Uh, together, Farrell and McDonough really make that transition in his character so believable planting the seeds early and you just you don't want to see it happen but you know that something something is growing inside of Padraig that uh, really can't be stopped that's what happens when you touch a man's donkey I mean oh my god something snaps in them (laughs) but obviously yes we we saw that entire transition and how it's all been bubbling and brewing inside of him and it was kind of crazy to see it come to life but like we said very justifiable between this and eo i I have not had this much sympathy for donkeys (laughs) since the years of shrek my lord (laughs) it's it's been a journey to say the least but jenny the donkey is definitely supporting and i hope there's no category fraud here (laughs) yeah she was my you know what sorry carrie we found our new mvp here <laughs> i do i did really enjoy many of the scenes where she was like get the feckin donkey outside <laughs> the donkey's inside i also really loved callum's dog as well oh, the dog. like the scene where he walks in on him like dancing with the dog yeah and he's like you're so miserable you have to ask your dog to dance with you <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that one scene when after he leaves, the dog knows exactly what to do, and he goes and yeah. fetches the shears, which yeah. I was like, what was the training that went into this? He was probably showing him a picture. He's like, if you see this man, give me the shears. And you know what? Because the comedy in this movie is so ridiculous sometimes, that's a moment where I was worried that I was going to be like kind of taken out of the movie and I wouldn't believe it. Because let's be real, I don't think that that would ever happen in real life. <laughs> uh, but yet it feels so it feels so right for the tone that McDonough has struck throughout in terms of the comedy that yeah. I was more than OK with like suspending my disbelief in that one moment. <laughs> Not to mention like just little things like I know I mentioned um Oh, the convenience store lady with the no news. Uh, but then there's also the uh, the bartender and oh, the other guy that's like across from him. And they're always like repeating what each other is saying. Yeah. And like yeah. their banter back and forth is so funny. I'd shush like Padre. Yeah, shush like. <laughs> and then there's, there's the prophetess of doom. Oh, my yes. gosh. Mrs. McCormick. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they say that she looks like a ghoul and 
she 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 probably is one um because <laughs> no i'm serious because like her inclusion into the story um actually you know what let me save that for spoilers uh towards okay. the end here uh because there is I, I i got some questions i want to ask you all about that okay <laughs> before we get there oh what'd you guys think of carter burwell's score oh what I love, it, it's like the cinematography. It doesn't call attention to itself, but it's absolutely perfect. You know, I, I did an interview with him, and the music is deliberately not Irish, uh, which was a direction from McDonough. He did not want it to be uh, an Irish, like, Celtic, like, kind of sound or anything like that at all. Mm. But when you listen back to it, the music should evoke a childlike sensibility about it to show uh, just what a man child Podrick is. <laughs> yeah. So I find that to be quite amusing and fun. And it's another example. Like and I see this throughout the movie in terms of the, the costuming. And uh, like you said, the music where everything is rooted in the characters and the writing has to be incredibly strong to support that. So I, I love that everything is kind of just working in tandem here to create something that you emotionally connect with and I, I you know tell me if you guys feel the same way but surprisingly more than i thought heading in based on the premise yeah yeah the, the premise could be a skit mm -hmm. and you know it it expands so quickly and gets really to the emotions of all of the characters because the characters are so well written and well so performed i also think the comedy uh, especially coming from Colin Farrell's character, that also helps in making him just so likable. You can't help but just in his moments, like whenever I can't, I can't remember how many times it happens, but there's so many instances in this where Colin Farrell is like talking with someone and his reply is, huh? <laughs> like, like he has no idea like what they just said. It's like baffling to him. And I, I, I just find his... Uh, just his outlook on life to be so, I mean, clearly, clearly he's not the sharpest tool in this in the shed, but that's part of the charm. But it but it it makes his eventual transition that much more dramatic and gripping. Mm hmm. Yeah. Agreed. All right. So, I, I mean, I did allude to a spoiler section here. I didn't think we were going to actually have one. But as I, as we were talking through, I, I figured, you know what, we need to have one. So let's dive in. OK. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, I think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Uh, okay, so... I guess we could start off with Mrs. McCormick and how she foretells that this movie will essentially end with two deaths. And I think that all of us probably uh, were expecting a different outcome than what we received. 
because the two deaths don't happen to be Podrick or Colum. It's Dominic and Podrick's poor donkey. Yes. Kenny. Which I thought was a very nice, neat little twist, but there was something about it that um, I was trying to wrap my head around, which was why the decision to kill Dominic? Did that character deserve that fate? And if he didn't deserve that fate and it is meant to be tragic, then how does that impact either of the other characters or play into any themes that McDonough is working with here? I kind of thought it was um, honestly a little random to kill Dominic. Yeah, like they say he slipped and fell into the lake. Yeah, um, I guess, you know, maybe he was, you know, heartbroken by everything going around him on this island. Um, Obviously, he has a very... uh, very tense relationship with his father. Oh, you think he deliberately drowned himself? I don't know. Maybe. Mm. I don't know. That, uh, see, now that would be more interesting. Like, I can't take any more of this life on this island. And it could Carrie be. Condon broke my heart when I professed my love to her yeah. earlier. I'm. Oh man. Yeah, she she left and didn't you know reciprocate the love. Maybe he was just sick of seeing how Podrick was turning into such an evil person and maybe he was like you know what there's nothing left for me on this island anymore so i kind of think maybe that could be it i i was thinking about that too in terms of like did, was it deliberate was it accidental and i kind of think the more deliberate uh storyline serves a little bit more here i agree yeah, yeah. I think you're onto something there. Definitely. And it, and also, too, it's the same river that he has the conversation with uh, Shaban yeah. uh, in front of as well. So that would make sense. Yeah. And his father uh, reacted out of surprise uh, when he was told about his son. So we know the father didn't have a hand in it, even though he beats him earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it was deliberate. Ooh. And Mrs. McCormick was the one that you know, found him and and delivered the news to his father. So that little banshee is just scooping the island. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I think, I hate to say it, but I think the donkey's death affected me more than anything. <laughs> that was really sad. I mean, for it to also come from, what actually impacted me about it, not, I, it wasn't even so much, Podrick's reaction because let's face it like that donkey to him was like you know us with a cat or a dog you know mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and it's very heartbreaking for him but I think what struck me and surprised me was how Callum uh takes responsibility for it mm-hmm. and recognizes that no she choked on my fingers that I threw at your doorway. Like, this is my fault. I did this. And he is accepting of the punishment that Podrick wants to inflict upon him as a result. And I think that goes back to whoever mentioned uh, that Colm still deep down does care about Podrick, that he is so remorseful, so guilty about what happened to his donkey. I mean, at one point he said, for God's sakes, the man's donkey just died. Like, leave him alone. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of love that. I do love how there's still that that love between them, even though it has significantly shifted. And that seemed like that was the last straw for Podrick in many ways. Yeah, I think that love that's still deep down there, I think it's just one of the many examples of this death of a friendship not being so personal and it's more about uh what column himself is going through and what he's contemplating about 
with time and the passing of it. I was thinking about that a lot, too, because the ending of this movie did not go in a direction that I expected it to go in. I actually did think that by the end of this film, uh, one of the two of them would actually end up dead. Yeah. And so when he goes to Colm's house and he's setting it ablaze and then he looks in the window, which mirrors, you know, the shot from earlier on in the film when he looks in and sees him sitting in there. Uh, Colm is sitting in the house as it's Mm -hmm. getting engulfed in flames. And I thought to myself, wow, what a powerful way to end this film with him willingly going to stay in the house and go with it, accepting what he had done to his former friend. Uh, but also because now he's lost all his fin- all of his fingers and he can't play the fiddle anymore and make that music, this whole thing, like the whole purpose of why he was doing this to begin with is over for him. Like he might as well burn with it. So it like took me even further <laughs> in surprise when I saw that he decided to not stay in the house and he ends up on the beach with him at the end. Now, Did the thought occur to anybody or am I the only one because I just was so confident that he was going to stay in that house? Did anybody think that he does stay in the house and Podrick is imagining him on the beach? Hmm. Because it is it is just the two of them, I think. And the only person who does see them is Mrs. McCormick at the end. The dog was also on the beach. Yeah. And we know (laughs) the dog didn't stay in the house because Podrick was insistent that the dog would not burn in the house. So, yeah, exactly. Which is interesting, right? Because you would think because he killed a donkey, he would kill the dog. He's not a monster like that. <laughs> that's yeah, that's true. It, it it didn't it didn't hit me because frankly, I was I, I if he stayed in the house while the house was on fire, I was a, I would be a little unsatisfied with it. As powerful as it would be, it would seem a little three billboardsy to me. Mm-hmm in terms of kind of big, splashy ending. And I kind of like the note that ended on. Yeah. So I'm choosing to believe that he left the house. And right now there is an uneasy detente going on as they each go forward. I agree. So I had I had to wrestle with it for a little bit because I no. didn't know if I liked the ending at first. Uh, but then I remembered something. Yes. There is this Irish civil war that is going on on the mainland. Yes, that is the yes. backdrop over there. And I and then I suddenly drew a connection and the connection was at a certain point when you have brother fighting against brother suddenly nobody even knows what they're fighting for anymore. Maybe people forget why they started the fight in the first place and all you're left with is all this carnage and then for what? What was the purpose? What was the point of all of it? And I do think that the minor conflict between Parik and Colum is meant to be, I, I, I believe, like this small metaphor for larger conflicts, which um, McDonough is like communicating to all of us are utterly pointless as much as this tiny little squabble is. That's how I understood that, too. Sure, he got his inspiration for a beautiful piece of, uh, you know, music, but it came at the cost of a friendship. It came at the cost of losing his property. It came at the cost of him not ever being able to play that music on the violin. So at the end of the day, you kind of look at that and think, huh, why did I do that in the first place? (laughs) Right. 
and I, I do like the way that the Civil War is used. It's it's in the distance. You know, it's always there. But the Civil War that's going on in this island between these two men, um, the way the Civil War in the mainland was te- tearing the nation apart, the 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 fight between uh, Padraig and Colm uh, is tearing the town apart too. Yeah, mm-hmm. no one mm-hmm. is happy that life is different, and um, I, th- I think that the, the the town is crying out for equilibrium to come back, and I think it may from the last scene, but it's left ambiguous, and I kind of like that. That is my ultimate question as we uh, get to final thoughts here. What do you think becomes of them after the movie is over? Do you think that they remain distant, but now they're even? Or do you think that they reconcile because they realize that all of this was pointless and look at how much we lost and we should just agree to remain friends? Like, what's your interpretation, Nadia? Um... I've been wrestling with this and I do think it can go either way, but I am kind of leaning towards them being distant. I do love that McDonough, like this is kind of a thing that occurs in almost all of his films and, and also in his plays too, is that he leaves you with these open endings that force you as the audience to decide for yourself how you want the ending to be. Yeah, I think what's changed in the sense of their relationship is is how Podrick feels about it, where he's gotten to a point where he's no longer going to circle around him, I don't think, and follow him around. But he'll he, I think he's reached an understanding where I think he maybe knows where Colin's at at this point. And that's why I'm kind of leaning towards them being more understanding of each other and where they're at at this point in their lives and them deciding or kind of mutually, even on a subconscious level, knowing that, okay, this is a point where we're just going to be distant and take it from there. My interpretation is Colm has lost the ability to play music ever again. He's lost his home. Parik has lost his sister, his donkey. I just think that all they have left is each other. And uh, that it sounds hokey when I say it like that, but that's the ending I'm going with. Emma, what about you? <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good ending, too. <laughs> I would love for them to be a little friendly with each other. I just feel like, you know... Too much shit has gone down. <laughs> too much has happened. I mean, one of them lost... They both kind of lost like their livelihoods and the people that make them happy in this world and the the activities that they enjoy. So I kind of think at this point, it's kind of like maybe they say like good morning to each other if they pass each other on the street, if anything like that. But I just feel like that relationship is so destroyed because truly everything around them, they destroyed themselves. So I'm kind of on the sadder aspect. <laughs> Tom, what about you? I think I might be a little bit more hopeful, uh, and that may just be wishful thinking, but both of them are very different people by the end of the film than they were at the beginning. Yeah. And if they're going to rebuild a relationship, it's not going to be the same relationship that they had before. And I think it's going to take a lot of work, and I think it's going to take a lot of time. But I can see them... 
having a different relationship. And Colin, I mean, and Colm is, I think, could, can see what his life, the prospect of his life, how much it's changed. And perhaps he'll be the one that needs Podrick a little bit more than Podrick needed him at the beginning. All right. We're up to final thoughts here. So anything that we did not mention that you want to mention uh, or something you want to reiterate? Nadia? I was kind of thinking about um, just the fact that Colm chops off his fingers. Do you think it's a way of him trying to be memorable and talked about? Because I was thinking about that character and... He's clearly thinking about, he's at a point in his life where he's questioning, is this a life that I want to live? Are these the people or is this the person, referring to Project, that I want to be spending all my time with? Who will remember me? And I think him trying to work on his music and being a musician is such an interesting part of the screenplay where there's been this, you know, there's a world of established world-renowned artists and it's difficult to make a name for oneself. And I think him cutting off his fingers and continuing to play on in the moments that he can. Um, it just made me think about maybe he's doing this to not one of the reasons, but he's one of the reasons would be for him to get talked about and to try to make something interesting out of this life that he's living. I love that because I actually did not think of that until you just said it that but it's interesting though because if he doesn't cut off the fingers then he can continue to play the music and be remembered through that maybe but by cutting off the fingers it is strengthening his resolve and upholding his code and honor for what he has pledged to do And that is the kind of thing that I imagine definitely like the entire island would know about it and everybody would remember it for sure. And it would probably become almost like a Irish folktale that would get passed down as like a bedtime story from generation to generation. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, because I did get that sense of watching the the story play out it kind of felt at times like i was watching a fable play out i think there's something about it that it, i i suppose it has some elements of like a dark fairy tale that could be told over time the story of these two guys who used to like each other like it just felt very fable like mm-hmm. in that sense i i can totally see that i I'm going to I'm going to think on that one a little bit more probably because this is the first time the thought has entered my mind that because the movie makes a point to say that he's suffering some from some form of depression, right? But then I did think to myself, is he actually depressed or do the other characters chalk what he's doing up to the depression and they just say that constantly that you start to think that he is depressed? I wonder. I cuz I do think that column is presenting everything with a very clear mind and clear heart with what he's intending to do. Although he does also say to the priest at one point when he's in the confessional uh, that he's had the, uh, what, the distressing thoughts, I think he calls it, mm-hmm. or something along those lines. Yeah. So, all right, maybe I'm a little off on that. Maybe there really is a, depress- a depressive element to it on his end. <laughs> but 
still, I, I, I like that interpretation a lot, Nadia, because you, you would think to yourself, why would you do that? Like, because now you can't play anymore. But maybe he thinks, hey, you know what? There are so many musicians out there and, you know, it's a fine little tune, but, you know, there are so many others like it. But how many people can say they've done this? <laughs> you know, that's very Irish. I- yeah or maybe it's a product of me just because i think that aspect of it just completely threw me for a loop i kept thinking why you know what's the reasoning behind it and um i guess it just made me want to dig deeper into it i mean also too i think it is obviously on a character level just him reinforcing to Podrick that he's increasingly serious about what he's intending to do here and why he wants power to take him seriously. But what I don't understand is he goes from chopping off one to the next time he chops off all f- the, the remaining four. And it's like, why not just do one at a time? <laughs> what are you, why, why are you, why are you skipping ahead so much? <laughs> to really drive home. Stop talking to me. <laughs> seriously. Oh my gosh. I, and I love to like the first time he makes the threat, like everybody, <laughs> everybody's reaction to it is hilarious to me. You know, Barry Keoghan, uh, Dominic is like, you know, would you like to see him cut off one just to see if he was bluffing? <laughs> <laughs> and Carrie Condon's like, no, we don't want him doing anything of the sort. Absolutely not. She's like very, very dead set on taking Column's threat seriously. And then you have Podrick who's like, like it, it, it's like this guy literally has made it so super clear that he does not want you talking to him, but yet he still like goes up and still talks to him, but like he'll pad it out like almost as if he's saying, "Hey, I'm talking to you, but this one doesn't count because <laughs> yeah, or he was like, "Well, I didn't talk to you six hours ago, so it's okay now because I gave you that break, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just saying sorry for last night. That's not me bothering you, is it? That's just me trying to be nice. <laughs> uh, any other final thoughts, Nadia? Uh, just to to echo how good everyone in, is in this film, but particularly Colin Farrell. I think he his performance is such a great blend of tragedy and comedy. So much vulnerability going on there. He's so entertaining to watch, and he finds something engaging to convey in the simplicity of the character and the story, the arc that his character goes through, the way he can convey the childlike uh, personality just as easily as the more mean-spirited one that we see later on in the film. Um, He's just fantastic in this and just, I hope he gets all the recognition. And I also hope uh, Carrie Gondon gets recognition because I loved her performance and I loved her character and the way she takes matters into her own hands not just when it comes to the friendship that she's witnessing but about her own life and where she wants to be and wonderful acting all around yeah I was very happy to see that Mark McDonough specifically wrote this role for Carrie Condon and I just appreciate seeing a working actress like get their due with a meaty part like this you know it's always very satisfying. Great to see, especially because I had I just realized this now that she was in Better Call Saul. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> great. She was she was so great in that. And I think she also did so much with so such simplicity. Mm-hmm. And so it's great to see her 
do something similar here and just completely knock it out of the park. Absolutely. Emma, how about you? Final thoughts? Um, I really like that uh, idea that you just threw out, Nadia, over the reasoning behind the finger snipping. So I'm going to I'm going to think about that, too, and see if that might all be part of it. Um, But I just think that even though this film does kind of go toward these twisted moments, um, it still finds a really great way to ground itself. And I think like the thing that kind of hit me the most was seeing how much Podrick is really trying to salvage this relationship, how much it means for him. And Colm is like just so able to move past it and not even look at him on the street when he passes by him. And that kind of, you know, that was just another one of those, Ooh, that really hurts because we've all may have been in that situation before, whether it was a friendship or a romantic uh, relationship where one person is still holding on, but the other person can just move on like nothing happened. So I thought that there were really, uh, really great moments that showed the, the reality, the humanity of all of this that was going on, even though the backdrop may have been a little wild at times. Um, And I just think Colin Farrell has had quite a year. I mean, after Yang, uh, the Batman playing the Penguin, this film, 13 Lives, I mean, he has just been everywhere this year. And it's been such a joy to see him tap into so many different characters and, and just different talents that he can access within himself so this is a very very fun performance from him and like I said I really enjoyed Carrie Condon really enjoyed Brendan Gleeson really all around a fantastic cast so very pleasantly surprised with this film and uh, it's it's getting a very high recommendation from me to others all right Tom O'Brien before we met uh, tonight to talk about the film I was going over in my mind what some of the many things I love about it. And I just love this island. There's world building going on here. You may not think about it, but you really, by the end of this film, you know where everything is. Yeah. (laughs) You get a real sense of place, a sense of the pace of life there and how they are a world unto themselves. And the, the, the world that, McDonough builds here is no less impressive than what a lot of people do in space movies or something like he he serves the material by creating the world that these people inhabit and I want to visit this island someday <laughs> That's all. it is a goal of mine uh, when I take my first vacation in seven years that I will go to the mountains of Ireland mm-hmm. and I will enjoy me some good points good. we like to hear that that is my goal and the people will welcome you they're great people uh all right final thoughts for me uh missed opportunity to have the jump scare of the year uh with dominic's father uh waking up naked i, I think that would have been a absolute i mean listen the gag itself was still funny but if he had actually woken up in that moment i think the audience would have lost their minds (laughs) (laughs) it would have reminded me a lot of um and and you will all know if you've seen the movie that shot in sideways oh yeah like i was imagining something like that happening (laughs) (laughs) but 
it doesn't happen. So missed opportunity there. Um, what else do I have? There are so many lines in this movie that are so funny. You know, and normally I would rattle these off at this point in the podcast, but I think this movie works at its best going in, not knowing some of its best lines. Um, I, and I think that's where most of the humor will come from is that some of the dialogue in this is just so witty and so funny and not in a modern way. It, I mean, it feels modern, but the way that he grounds uh, the di- the diction, the dialect, everything about it, it, it feels so much of the time while with a modern like attitude, if you will. I really, really love the way that he just writes uh, dialogue in general. And I'm very, very impressed here uh, for a period film, how he managed to make it both feel period, like authentic, but also at the same time, modern at the same time. Uh, And also Colin Farrell's. (laughs) He has so many great like reaction shots in this movie that just crack me up. But the one that still uh, kills me, it's in the trailer is uh, just his reaction when Brendan Gleeson issues the threat. And he's like, do I make myself absolutely clear now? And Colin Farrell's like, not really, no. (laughs) 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 Just lose it every single time. And I want to just take a moment to, yeah, also just throw praise um, at all the actors one more time here. Uh, Brendan Gleeson it's a definitely a more subdued role that I think people are expecting. He certainly has the role that can only be done because Colin Farrell's role is so much more um, flashier. But also at the same time, what Farrell is doing here, it, while it is reminiscent of his work in Bruges, I hate using this term again, but it does feel more mature. It feels more toned down. And I think that's the period but I also think that's the the actor. I think Colin Farrell has managed to refine and hone in on the qualities that he knows he could do best. And here it's presented with just a certain level of experience that even compared to 2008, I think that he has just grown to become such an incredible character actor. And yes, these are two very different characters, but they both do play still in very similar realms of comedy of drama dark comedy might i add and you know he's got his moments where he's absolutely hysterical but then he has these moments where he just absolutely breaks your heart too and he's phenomenal in this i i think it's it may not be like my favorite performance of his to date i mean that might happen over time but god it's definitely if not his best it's easily top three easily Uh, And Carrie Condon, once again, just, I mean, for some people, she's stealing the movie. For me, she comes like super close. I mean, it's hard for me to choose an MVP here. I think that she is just a force, though, in this. And once again, very, very happy that she was able to get a role that showcases what a talented actress she is. And I'm sure that this will open up more doors for her. Um, I, I see this very much as a pivotal game changer in her career moving forward, which is really cool to see. All right, great out of 10. Uh, easy, 9 out of 10 for me. I think that this is McDonough's best work to date, and I've always been a fan of his. I've liked all of his movies to a certain degree up until this point. Um, and yes, I know if you dig deep enough, you'll see in my history that I've also given nines to some of his other films, but 
you know, if that's the year in which it came out, uh, I, I would say that this is definitely his best, in my opinion. Tom, what about you? Agree 100%. His best film, his most mature film, and I think his best piece of direction. For me, it's a really strong nine. Emma? I'm currently at an eight out of ten, and I am very excited to rewatch this to see if my appreciation for it grows even more. But I already have a very, uh, very strong appreciation for it and its themes. Nadia? A very enthusiastic nine out of ten for me. All right. McDonough's best film of his career, one of the funniest films of the year, an incredible balance of melancholy and an incredible sense of humor. And I'm looking forward to rewatching it. Okie dokie. Oscar potential for the Banshees of Inishirin. I mentioned earlier that Martin McDonough is in the club, as it were. You know, let's remember he is an Oscar winner, technically, for best live action short for Six Shooter but then received an Oscar nomination for original screenplay for In Bruges. No Oscar nominations for Seven Psychopaths, but then three billboards managing, I think it was seven nominations, if my memory mm-hmm. serves me correctly. Yep. Uh, no director nomination, no, from Art McDonough for that film. Uh, he managed to get two Oscars for his lead and supporting uh, cast members in that film. Here, it's interesting because the potential, I think, is... I think the potential is pretty high with this one. I got to say, I've been thinking about this a lot. And from a nomination standpoint, I do find myself like wondering about the below the line categories more so than the above the line. I I do think this film is getting in for picture, Colin Farrell, the screenplay, probably Brendan Gleeson. Uh, I I mean, like, it's interesting because I've heard more people who have seen it. They turn around and say, oh, well, it's not the kind of performance that wins, but it does feel like the kind of performance that is an acknowledgement of a career, right movie, right time sort of thing. Here's your first nomination. We've always loved you, that that sort of thing. Uh, and Carrie Condon, uh, it's just such a standout performance and it's, it's such a breakout role for her. I see supporting actress potential there. But then like the editing, the cinematography and the score, that's where I start to have a little bit of hesitation. What, what about you, Tom? Well, it depends on the love in the Academy for this film. And I suspect, given our current lineup of a lot of divisive films that are contenders here, um, I can see a path for Banshees to be the sleeper best picture winner. Wow. Because have you met anyone who dislikes the film? Uh, no, I've heard varying degrees of likeness. I don't think I've met a single person that did not like it altogether yet. And very often best picture is the most not I want to say popular, but the least objectionable. And I've heard people who don't like tar. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly people don't like the sun. People don't like Bardo um, and various things about the other contenders. I think everywhere, everything everywhere is probably the other major beneficiary of everyone liking it. But I could see a path for this one because it's fresher, it's newer, and it's warmer. Um, so I'm thinking picture, definitely screenplay. Mm-hmm. I think all three actors will get in. Nice. Love that optimism. Yeah. I think no matter what, I think Colin Farrell gets in. The other, the other two... Yeah. 
I'm, I'm like inclined to say Gleason because more so than Condon just because he's been around and everybody's worked with him at this point and it's like he's in a best picture contender it's like he has no reason to miss no and it's a major supporting role it's not category fraud no but it's a major supporting role in a film that people love he doesn't have a scene to win it though in my opinion no no I don't I don't think he does but um I, I'm pretty confident that he'll get in. Um, I guess the big question above the line is director. And it's I think he has a much better chance getting in here for this film than he did for three billboards. But are we just but hold on, are we just saying that though? Because let's remember something. He got in at every precursor he needed to for billboards. He didn't miss anything that year. He got in at DGA, he got in at BAFTA like he got in everywhere the only thing he missed was Oscar so are we saying that now because like it's like I I I ask myself like was the was the director miss for billboards a fluke or is it something that will indeed repeat again you know yeah no that's a fair point there were probably more marquee names that year uh, and also, I think there's a perception that because he's a playwright, it's it basically three billboards was a triumph of writing rather than directing, which is like the way that I think they also viewed someone like Sorkin, who in a very similar manner got in everywhere he needed to for Trial of Chicago 7, didn't get a director nomination because I think they see him as a writer. Yeah. And I, I wonder if McDonough has gotten to a point where. They see him as that director, especially when you're going to have more uh, flashy auteur driven projects that he's going to go up against. You know, you know what would overcome that, though? What? If Banshees truly really is like a top two or three contender. I, I could still see. I, 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 But then again, Billboards was a top two contender and that didn't you know, he still didn't make it. So I, I don't know. No, it's a good point, and and I honestly don't know. Um, I think that it would help greatly if he got one or two below the lines. Which is where I'm struggling. Yeah, me too. I mean, billboards ended up getting in for score and editing. I don't see this getting in for editing. No. Billboards editing was flashier. Yes. And the score for this, too, I mean... If it gets in for score, then I'll believe that there's something else going on here. Yeah. Um, if it gets in for editing, I'm I'm actually going to be ready to declare that this is probably winning Best Picture at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm leaning this towards this being a because here's the thing, right? Whenever we talk about like Oscar potential, the final Oscar nominations are always a little bit lesser usually than what we think yeah. a film's going to get. That's true. So there's a part of me that thinks that this is going to get. Like two acting nominations, screenplay picture, and that's it, you know? And it's like four nominations, and it's like we we head into nomination morning thinking it's going to get like six or seven, and it, and it only ends up getting four. You know what I mean? Yep, yep. And it could very well happen. But I just think that there is a feeling about this in terms of warmth and love that I think was not there for billboards. I'm with Tom on that. I, I do, I, I am having trouble with the below the lines, and I'm not predicting this one to appear there but i am thinking about the response that this film has been getting so far and i do i wouldn't be surprised if it pops up in these categories that seem pretty stacked at the moment 
but I, uh, beyond that, I definitely have it in for picture for Colin Farrell. I do think Brennan Gleason will be in. I think not only is it a really good, good supporting performance, but he's such a two-hander with him and Colin Farrell that I feel like for people watching this film, they'd be remiss to not to recognize Gleason as well. Um, and I have Carrie Connie getting in, but it is those below the line categories that I'm still kind of feeling uncertain about, but I'm feeling more and more, uh, I don't know, I just have a feeling that this film will just, that the love for it will just continue to build and then it'll get more than what uh, I'm expecting it to. Actually, Nadia, it's only a one-hander for Brendan Gleeson's character. Sorry oh. to sorry to correct you. <laughs> but I will say, though, no, in terms of what Nadia just said about the love for this building and manifesting, I have definitely played this scenario out in my head a couple of times now. There is a world where, because let's face it, we all know Martin McDonough was really close in 2017 to winning original screenplay with three billboards. There is a world where he wins screenplay for this film. He's already won the award from Venice. And this is more critically acclaimed. And I have a feeling that the precursors are going to go for this hard. Yeah. I also think the precursors are going to go for Colin Farrell pretty hard, too. Because as much as Brendan Fraser has momentum and everybody wants to see him win for The Whale, I do think that. Banshees is just the more beloved film overall amongst the critics at this current moment. And there is more of a inclination to want to recognize Colin Farrell, maybe because like rewarding Brendan Fraser is the obvious thing. But if you were to put then the screenplay win with Colin Farrell together, it could add up to a best picture win when all is said and done. Yeah, I can see that. And then if it doesn't, and something else takes picture, then, well, in that case, then it's what? It's Manchester by the Sea, right? Actor, screenplay. Yeah, uh, now, nobody says that Manchester by the Sea was close that year because the race was clearly between Moonlight and La La Land. So let's take another step back here and let's just imagine maybe Banshees really is Manchester by the Sea in this race and our La La Land and Moonlight is Fableman's and something else. You know what I mean? Like, it could also be in that slot where it was never in contention to win Best Picture, but it was clearly number three. Very possible. Um, I think we sh- we have the big unknown of Babylon, and if by chance that crashes and burns, mm-hmm. um, we will have Fableman's Everything Everywhere and Banshees as probably the top three. And they're all original screenplays. So like the battle for Best Picture is really going to be decided by who wins original screenplay. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this could happen, too. I mean, Women Talking, which is the front runner for Adapted. Maybe that's the film that they go with for Best Picture. Maybe. Got to look at those screenplay categories. Uh, They're becoming key. Let me ask you. Let me ask you this question. After having seen Banshees and knowing the passion for everything, everywhere all at once. Do you go with McDonough? I, I don't want to assume that there's like an IOU because it doesn't feel like there is one for billboards, but do you feel like he gets it this time in that category? Or do you think that the originality of everything everywhere all at once Ooh. gives it the win in original screenplay? It, it depends. I think on where the Academy feel what they, what they consider a screenplay. I think the concept of everything everywhere is superior 
but I think the dialogue in Banshees takes it. And will will everything everywhere be considered more of a directorial achievement than a writing achievement? What do you think, Emma? Well, my heart is still set on everything everywhere all at once because I do think that it also has that warmness factor to it. It has these uh, beloved actors coming together, playing this family, going through the struggles and highs and lows of a family. I think it resonated with so many people in many different ways that I kind of feel like that maybe that might try triumph it all. But I mean, also, too, as we've been discussing, there is such a it's such a poignant script with uh, Banshees that I just don't know what the Academy might be feeling. There is one. I have only one thought about that, actually, and that is Banshees is entertaining. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you care about the characters. Ask yourself this question. How do you think people feel about the ending to the movie because I do get the feeling that the ending to Banshees is a bit more cerebral than people might anticipate and everything everywhere all at once just ends on such a emotional high that's that's the thing I've been wondering is how do both endings stick with people once the movie's over I think the ending of everything everywhere all at once would stick with people more Mm -hmm. just because of truly the journey that you have gone on with all of this. And I think you're just kind of sitting back like, wow, (laughs) we just did that. We just saw all of that. That was Mm -hmm. wild. Um, But then there's the argument argument for Banshees as well and how this very uh, reflective piece kind of sits on you. And as we have all discussed, how it can relate to so many different relationships that we may have in our lives. I, it's it's hard when both of these films are kind of based on the relationships that people have <laughs> in life with each other. So I don't know. I think this is a really interesting battle that I kind of hadn't considered prior to this conversation. And then I think in the category of best actor, I think it all hinges on whether or not the whale gets into best picture, because I'm pretty confident Banshees is getting a best picture nomination. I can't say the same about the whale. And if the whale doesn't get in, then Brendan Fraser better win. E- even if he does win, now that I'm thinking about it, like even if he were to win Golden Globe, Critics' Choice, SAG, all it takes is Farrell to win the BAFTA and have a Best Picture nomination. Farrell's winning yeah. the Oscar. Best Picture nomination day will be very telling for us. Yeah. Because we know Banshees is getting nominated for Best Picture, right? Yes. That's yeah, I think that's a safe bet. It's looking really good. And <laughs> the movie's <laughs> the movie's looking really good. <laughs> and it helps that it's a hit. Yeah. Yes. Uh which it's in early, early days right now for that, so we can't say definitively, but uh box office performance uh for opening weekend was pretty good, pretty good per theater average. I think it was what the second highest of the year, right? Yep, only behind everything everywhere. Look at that. Maybe it'll be behind everything, everywhere, all at once at the Oscars, too. We'll see. Um, All right. That'll do it here for our review of The Banshees of Inishirin. Nadia Dalamante, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at NADReviews and on Instagram at EarthToFilms. Emma Sasek? You can find me on Twitter at Emma underscore Sasek and on Letterboxd at Emma Sasek. And Tom O'Brien. And you can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien. 
and you can find me in Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hey. <laughs> we used to be the best of friends. Have you been rowing? Oh, I just thought of that line. I'm not putting my donkey outside when I'm sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love this movie. So many great lines. Oh. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.